Hey, this is Max Alper, and you are listening to Lameem Young. listening seminars Sace. that's right baby peter that was not algo rave technically that was just live vcv racking one time from me just playing the recently added to my itunes for you guys so there you go Nice little, I mean, it's kind of algorithm. There's definitely some rando things in there for sure, but no coding. No coding for me is scary, scary, cold, scary. Okay, you know the drill. Submit tracks. You got questions and thoughts, concerns, analytical quandaries of sorts. We discuss it, we listen to it, and we discuss it. You know how it is. If you're not listening to this live with me in a Zoom chat and you're not listening to it on the po- on the Patreon, then you should sign up for the Patreon and do it. Come on now. Come on. Come through. Come on through. Ask your questions. Don't be scared. Don't be a coward. Let's be a coward. <laughs> Submit Saint Anger, so I have some concerns. What possible concerns could you have about Saint Anger, the piece de resistance, the Metallica? Truly, we peaked as a civilization when that record came out. But alas, we're not going to be talking about Saint Anger today. We have some submissions so far in the Discord. Uh, we have three submissions for today. I can take two more if you want to put them live in the Zoom or on the Discord. So if anything comes to mind, please do so. Starting off, we have Vincent. Speaking of the resistance, we have Vincent has a track for us. A good one. A good, an oldie, it seems. He wrote us a little, uh, a little, a little statement, which I'm very stoked on, and I'll include the too long didn't read at the end. Vincent writes, "My track is Benyamos Ben Benyanimos Gilis' 1929 recording of Mi Par Duidir Ancora from the Italian version of the French composer Bizet's opera. Oh God, this will be even harder." <laughs> Les Pechures de Perles. De Perles? De Perles? It's all good. It's all good. I'm more of a Latin speaker than a French <laughs> uh, pronunciator. While this is not the most high-fidelity recording of the song, I love this version because it encapsulates a kind of slowness that seems like it was only prominent before the digitalization of the music process where the grid of anything resembling it or anything resembling it was much, was much less important, if not trivial, when compared to the feel, the actual emotion captured in the performance. At many points in the song, it feels like the orchestra is suspended to Gili's soprano voice, dragging them slowly but carefully through the song's amazingly slow tempo. In the context of the opera, the character recalls in the song the sweet voice of a priestess he's infatuated with, clinging to this elusive memory as the only artifact he has left of his love. As Ben Ratliff puts in his book, Every, Every Song Ever, Nadir, quote, Nadir, the singing character, is carried away. Mad intoxication, he sings. Sweet dream. This was, at the time, about as, about as well recorded as recordings get. But there is, a, there is a mystery and modesty about the performance. Despite the best sonic fidelity possible at the time, something about the past is being hidden from us, just as something is being hidden from the deer. We can't fully possess the voice of the priestess. We can't fully possess the song. 
That's a good quote from Ben Ratcliffe there. Vincent continues in bold. I want to understand why this song is the best encapsulation of heartbreak and longing I've heard. I think two characteristics contribute to this, the slowness and the warmth and vulnerability of the recording. Too long didn't read. Why does this lo-fi recording of a 1929 opera performance fuck me up so hard? Great question indeed. Great writing from you. Thank you very much, Vincent, for this wonderful description and questions and a little bit of research. So let's take a listen to Mi Par Duidir Ancora. Oh, 
hell yeah. Listening to that, give it up for our Italian heartthrobs, turn of the century Italian heartthrobs, opera, opera singers. They have a way with emotions. The true romantics, it's in the name. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, <laughs> Benyanimo is certified zaddy. <laughs> Peter says, hey, wait a minute. I'm a turn of the century Italian heartthrob. Nah, man, this is, this is, mm. this is play this at my daughter's wedding. I'm not even, I'm not even Italian or Catholic. Play this, the prima voce. Absolutely wonderful. Um, so what we're talking, what we were talking about in the in the chat as this was playing, that it's really important to discuss when dis when discussing recording, is the usage of tape as a music recording uh, medium was not standardized uh, outside of, or really at all, until the post-war. You know, magnetic tape was being introduced during. Uh, the immediate post World War One and Nazi reign of uh, of Germany, uh, but for the most part, it was primarily being used for military and uh, political purposes, propaganda purposes. We really weren't starting to hear uh, high fidelity tape in uh, any sort of popular music until the post war era. So I'm all of this to say is that this being recorded in 1929 means that pretty much by default this was a single mono recording recorded live in a orchestra sized studio of sorts uh recording studio or little uh you know performance hall and as mentioned in the chat it requires a different type of physical orchestration for there to be a way that the microphone at the time, because this is broadcasting microphones being recorded more than likely to phonograph directly to phonograph. We're going straight to wax, baby. Uh, more than likely being recorded straight to wax of some sort, utilizing a single uh, mono at the time broadcasting microphone diaphragm that uh, was wide enough in the sort of omnicardioid directional situation that could pick up uh, something in the room. So as long as you physically maneuver your ensemble in a way where you have your quietest instruments in front, your loudest instruments in the back, you know, this is really tapping into orchestration in the performance hall setting and the natural acoustics because orchestras have been performing without any sort of amplification for centuries, right? Um, and really the earliest formats of recording sort of fall, fell in with this, which is why so many, you know, classical music engineers rarely, uh, record orchestras with more than like a sexy pair of stereo mics, because it's really not about close biking instruments, but rather recording the room as one would be like a front and center audience member of the orchestra themselves to evoke that that exact feeling. And so when you're recording that, it requires single take, in this case, single mono take with both uh, singer, we got Gili right up in front, and we have ourselves a conductor. Now, going into your question as to how does this just feel so emotionally evocative and pure and really swaying as far as the slow tempo of it goes, because you're hearing the Boom, 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 boom. Do I have a uh, G minor? That's really, it's the, the low end of that. Oh. 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 Keys are a bit loud. Sorry. I'll turn it down. Uh, but regardless, uh, hold on. Just make sure that that's not don't need to be too uh too too hot there. A little better, a little better. But yeah, this, so that's a G minor scale here, probably in a click, click, click. Ba, one, two, three, 
for I'm actually might be we might be hearing this in a slow a a, a three meter because it kind of has a a waltz bum 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 ba still in four but with some sort of triplet let's hear it a little bit. So it is in fours, three, four. But there are some moments that feel suspended or have uh, some slow rhythmic syncopations happening that could give some triplets feel to it. Harry says they also recorded it in some great sounding rooms with musicians that were very good at mixing themselves in the space. Yes. So this is another thing: the European tradition of radiophonic orchestras. Right. This is a pre pre-war, pre-even vinyl, like home recording uh, medium of broadcasting was live musical performance of orchestras in these large government-funded recorded radiophonic orchestra studios that, you know, that were the real, uh, real professional studios for orchestras. I mean, they're still around. I mean, uh, Funkhaus in uh, Berlin, uh, even Abbey Road, uh, is you know set up for this uh, radiophonic orchestra originally uh, these state these state uh, these studios and they predate high fidelity close mic amplification and stereo amplification so it really came down to the performance the conductor and the space that created this sort of stuff I can assume that we have direct eye contact between Gili and conductor as far as these moments where we feel like the tempo might be dragging down you know these are the little things that come with in the case of orchestral music re the requirement of a conductor because although we can all feel this as listeners to pull this off tightly to pull off a retardo <laughs> that's unfortunately what we call it but when we slow down the final few notes of the phrase uh, it's really about the uh, it's really about the conductor giving these probably it's basically modern choreography the way that they cue physically their hands to and it you know it's about in the tradition of orchestra the tightness of rehearsal based under the direction of the conductor and for the sake of radiophonic orchestras the conductors are probably just as well versed in the acoustics and sort of basic understanding of, you know, st studio acoustics at the time and studio technology as they were involved in the orchestral arrangement. You know, this is something that the, the, the um, engineers that record classical music are, are still to this day, they call them tone meisters. And what that is, is really uh, from the Eurocentric sort of radiophonic orchestra tradition of, having these classically trained radio audio engineers uh, that just knew just as much about orchestration and musical dynamics as they did about the radio technology and recording technology. Um, and it's just something they don't, they don't make them like they used to as far as recording engineers of live mixes go, because this was for 1929, a really incredible take. Peter, you write, I think there is something haunting and tragic about the fact that none of these people on the recording are alive anymore, but we are hearing them. That's relatively new experience in terms of recording technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's ghost technology, literally. I mean, that and film and photographs, but the, you know, sound was the last, really one of the last things to, to come. Uh, you know, moving picture too, but moving picture and sound combined. You know, these are, this is how, memories are able to be sustained beyond the individual generation of the time, but for fucking a century later, you know? Um, it's why recording arts in particular must be viewed as its own, and sound studies and audio culture must be viewed as its own category of thought and theory, separate but related, but separate on its own to music, music theory as a whole. Uh, and acoustics as a whole, uh, because this is, uh, you know, the physics of acoustics as a whole, because this is something that we're, it's a, it's a phenomenon that's just about a century old, you know, 
it's a brand new phenomenon in the in the long term of in the long term scheme of things regarding music uh and regarding sounds in general duplication and things like that so you know this is really the first wave what we're hearing is the first wave of music recording in a piece like this professional uh a toned meister quality music recording uh and i'm very curious actually about who the orchestra is in this case but this was a really great uh way to start us out thank you vincent for bringing this on uh always welcome guys to be bringing orchestral or 100 year old music that in a completely different language uh because these questions of recording technology as well as you know emotional resonance of music and how it holds up uh it's all related it's all branches of the same tree good stuff thank you thank you guys all right we got some from Peter. all right for something completely different but also emotionally wonderful we have some more soundtrack music from zelda more zelda soundtracks today peter writes this will probably be familiar to every single listener and harmonically it is just complex enough to be over my head at two half forgotten semesters of undergrad music theory word i took those semesters but that's it you know i'm just two semesters ahead of you i stopped after that <laughs> uh but this is about ear training it's just about you know making bridges here Peter continues, I really just want to do the very classic harmonic analysis of this. What these eight chords are, how the melody interacts with them, how the motion between them works. Hopefully it's all spelled out in triad arpeggios. And you actually include a uh, the, the score transcription itself. Well, there you go. Let me uh, download it and share the image in the chat here in the in le zoom this is the original koji kondo stuff perfect that's awesome uh give me a second here i can share the i will share it as an attachment anyone wants to look along in the zoom chat here one second and i will also uh have it open on my own to take a look while we listen. Okay. So this is Great Fairy's Fountain by Koji Kondo from The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. And it's a short one, so we can listen to it a couple times.
Ah, uh, yeah. Classic, baby. This is as standard meter as it comes. One, two, three, four. 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 Sixteenth note arpeggiations. Looking at the score here. in the key of f major yes one flat on the one flat on the key whatever it's called the key signature means we're in f major or the relative minor that's true it could be d minor i was hearing it in f but anyways Thinking about this as far as the structure of it goes, we have every four bar, there are 16th note, there are 16 uh, descending, uh, or, or four sets of four uh, descending arpeggiations. What we are looking at as far as the actual structure of this goes is three of, or I guess, let's see. Six out of the eight bars have an accidental, at least one accidental in them, which creates this passing tone, we call it, where it might be out of key in the uh, phrase itself, but it is actually passing, resolving a half step down in the next phrase to a more natural in key environment. So if you if you listen to it, it's dun, 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 right there. Dun, dun. That's a tritone. The tritone is not in either major or minor scales. That's the uh that's a a uh natural oh sorry no not a B natural in that that's a F sharp actually. Ooh so it's a it's a tritone in the scale but it's an F sharp rather than an F natural. So the accidental in the first downward uh, uh, bar utilizes a sharpened root in there. So that's our accidental for that phrase. Each of these, each of these phrases, except for the second one, the second phrase, that one, we're back into a uh, naturalized resolution that's fully consonant in, e in key. But then the following phrase after that has an accidental. The following after that has an accidental. Each of them has that has one accidental from the from that point on until the final bar. Um, so what that means is that you're playing with consonants in this sort of romantic, I guess, romantic style of a uh, classical theory, which includes passing tones and secondary dominance, which might include a, uh, I guess, dissonant note or accidental note if you're going to be thinking about it decontextualized just in the key of f major or d minor uh either way you look at it but really what we have here is just uh the usage of accidentals as passing tones in each bar to resolve in the next phrase to something else that is in key but then there might be another accidental on the you know 12th 16th note or 13th 16th note uh so it's kind of alternating between resolving back into key and then immediately adding another uh accidental in there to be that much more uh you know it's a it's it adds suspense in a uh film score or media score theme kind of way it creates this it's it's why romanticism works as far as classical music theory goes because uh it plays with dissonance as a way uh, that adds that you you're, you need to know what the next phrase is going to be, and hopefully it resolves back to our safety of G major, G major, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, F major or whatever. Um, Peter says makes it sound mysterious in this case. The big fairy lady is pretty, but also kind of scary. Exactly, like each of these. If it was just C major, you know, if it was just uh, F major without these uh, accidentals, without these passing tones in there, it would be, it wouldn't have the suspense. It wouldn't have the emotional evocation that we're looking for in that case, you know? So for this, for the sake of effective uh, classical music writing or classical technique utilized in media scoring, 
this is as you know old one of the oldest tricks in the book i mean john williams is like i would say the the king of romanticism in the film score context because you know everybody is ripping on wagner and you know mendelssohn these are all ideas that were coming out in the early mid you know basically the 1800s um so applying them in different contexts for media we immediately are brought to the orchestral sort of mind and for those that are wondering this is a digital harp by the way this the score that's being uh, presented to us is a p piano arrangement but if you were to see this orchestrated live you know what we're hearing is a midi harp uh, so the finger, what you're talking about, Peter, is the finger stretching and all that stuff. That's because this wasn't actually played with anyone's hands, like ever <laughs> originally in the recording. This is all programmed. Uh, but when you go and see these video game music orchestras, uh, you know, Berkeley College of Music has their own uh, video game orchestra, and uh, they've done they've done the the full Zelda scores, and this is a harp suite. You know, Great Fairy Fountain is for is a harp suite, you know. So, it, I mean, I'm not saying it would be easy for harp, but the way that the actual orchestration of the instrument, physical layout of this instrument is set up is just much easier for, you know, to do multiple notes uh, in proximity or in space to one another because it's, you know, the way that the strings are actually set up. You know how a guitar versus a piano it's just physical physical location of notes rather in in, in a, and how you write for certain instruments is based on you know the ease in which or lack of ease in which depends on the composer a uh, a player can play these notes on their instrument you know you wouldn't write a harp piece with a pian like with a pianist's technique in mind and vice versa you know, but because this is MIDI, because this is uh, video game music from the 90s, uh, it's computer generated with a nice little harp, MIDI harp in there. Yeah, it makes me want to go play. Makes me want to replay Breath of the Wild for the fifth time or whatever. All right. Thank you very much, Peter. What do we got here? We got Raid Bot. Raid Bot writes. Love Songs and Lamentations by Itsuro Shimoda is an awesome lightning-in-a-bottle type album where a singer-songwriter finds himself recording with an awesome cast of studio musicians, some from the West and some from Japan. We got that sweet stand-up bass, bongos and congas, the voice of Vicky Sue Robinson, disco-era queen. I think a producer by the name of Marcy Sutton is responsible for half the tracks on that album. Two Voices is a good representation for that whole album sound, what that whole album sounds like. I see this album being referred to as psychedelic rock or folk. What exactly would lead people to believe this has a psychedelic sound? Ah, yes, the age-old question. What is psychedelic music? What is alternative music? What is rhythm and blues music? <laughs> we get into these... Uh, terms that meant something at one point and then become something completely different when everyone else in the press starts using them. Let's take a listen to this, Two Voices by Shimoto Itsuru, and then we will talk about it. Two voices fill up a white room. Two voices tear the walls, my head. My voice is no good to make it here. I'm mute in here. Two voices fill up a white room. Two voices tear at the walls, my hand. My voice is no good to make it here. I'm mute in here. 
some that's some freak folk if i ever heard it i am curious as to what year this came out specifically uh let me see here on the page 1976 it seems yes 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 very much of the time so obviously we're hearing this very stripped down and i would assume live room recording uh some sort of uh live band you know like a live room recording to get this uh this jam feeling going here calling this psychedelic see this is when we get into the com the 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 the, the conversation as to what psychedelic music means because there's music that was made by people on drugs which I would probably put this in that category, or there is music for people to do drugs to, you know? Uh, there's two sort of, you know, th this is trippy, this is meditative, this is super, you know, like uh, completely delayed out, uh, you know, vibes, music, whatever you want to call it. So many different subgenres of psychedelia from this, from the idea of, making a sound that would be and a style of sound that would be enjoyable for someone who's tripping balls. But then there are also artists that are making music that is entirely inspired by uh, the drugs that they're currently on, but ends up becoming a more genuine uh, just performance under soul rock and roll folk. I would put this under folk, you know, there's an entire sort of like West coast, and I mean, East Coast being the first sort of like Greenwich Village wave in the counterculture movement, but post Flower Power, California, there were all these different subgenres of music and outsider music coming out of the post hippie movement. And, you know, this being a, a Japanese artist in particular, uh, having a even more outside perspective of trying to, you know, of, of, taking a very American aesthetic, you know, this sort of stripped down, uh, you know, van, van music instrumentation, acoustic guitar, bongos, stomping and clapping and just singing at a full volume, uh, you know, very much in the rooted in the American South, really, of all places where this style of, you know, sort of uh, stripped down folk or soul music comes from. Uh, and applying it uh, with, I don't know how we, I don't know the guy's story exactly, the artist's, the artist's uh, background and things like that, but coming at it from a Japanese perspective and combining it with both Japanese musicians and American musicians or Western musicians, however you want to describe, um, creates a unique perspective. Because I also know that psychedelic and drug culture in Japan in general is way more frowned upon and way more stricter and taboo 
over there than it is over here. So curious if uh, this gentleman came out to the States or even to Europe and was doing stuff like that, or if he was really entirely based in Japan doing this type of stuff. Um, and also, you know, I'm being obviously a little, I'm being a little uh, presumptuous here and assuming that he's high as fuck when he's making this music. But I can attest in my own experiences that playing this sort of uh, in inebriated folk is a tried and true tradition throughout all of mankind's history, but in America specifically with the acoustic guitar, starting with the blues, starting with the Delta blues, you know, this is, the, you know, we, we are, this is partying. This is partying music. Inebriation, whether it be drinking or drugging, uh, this, is, uh, this is some of the best, the best artwork has come in from this, <laughs> uh, specifically in sound. Uh, there's no doubt about it, especially in the recorded era. So uh, I'm just going to put two and two together and assume that maybe there's a bit imbibing involved because it seems like there's a nice, you know, real primal connection going on amongst the vocals and amongst the sort of performance that I don't know if you could really emulate in a sort of multi-track setting or not. Uh, and if you want to have something a bit more uh, live and raw in that way, it most certainly is. There's imperfections in this performance. It's not meant to be perfect vocals. It's not meant to be like on key or in in, in, a, in perfect uh, time every single bar, you know, but it's more about the experience of that. Um, listen, man, I'd be... I'd be smoking weed every day. I understand how that'd be work making music and smoking weed every day. It's it it is what it is. Uh it's two peas in a pod. Don't know what to tell you. Uh maybe he's smoking a little J in his album art. Looked like he got something in his mouth. I'm really curious about this dude's uh about this dude's background as far as like where he was active um making this type of music, you know? Because this isn't highly refined. You know, there's a lot of Japanese pop music that's Western-inspired throughout the mid-20th century, um, but it seems it's very well-refined, and it seems very much like, you know, studio-invested and things like that. This, and I don't know, I don't know this guy's discography, uh, but if we're saying this, this track sums up the record, you know, just in the rawness and kind of, uh, you know, the roots of folk and blues and things like that, if that's what this this track and album sort of represent, then I'm just curious what his scene was. If how he's in Japan doing this, how how uh, active was that, or if he had to tour out, or if he moved away. Uh, curious about this Shimoda Itsuro guy, but very happy to hear, uh, you know, this little time capsule here of uh, mid '70s folk. We would call this freak folk in the 2000s. That's for damn sure. Proto animal collective style shit. Uh, but this is way more bluesier than that. Way more soul than that. Uh, but just as freaky, if you ask me. Beautiful. Well, I would like to submit a track that we all listen to uh, because I haven't done that yet. And it looks like I haven't gotten any other submissions from y'all. So I would like to. Um, I would like to play y'all a track by a friend of mine, an artist. Well, first an artist that I started listening to because I loved their work and then eventually became friends with as just was sharing their shit on the internet as one thing leads to another. You just slide in the DMs and say, hey, love your shit, dog. This is Mabe Frati, who is a Guatemalan born but mexico city based cellist vocalist uh producer composer uh she makes really really interesting stuff with a i guess she has a band uh guitarist and uh bassist and or synthesist playing with her but she's she's always the one in the studio doing most of the things and uh cello is her main instrument beyond vocals but one of her records the first record I've heard of her is this record, Pies Sobre la Tierra, which I believe means feet about the land, right? Feet among the land. Uh, Jonas, back me up here. Is that correct? Feet on the land? So, pies Sobre la Tierra? Um, yeah, on the land. Feet on the land. Nice. Get your feet on the grass. She's literally telling us to touch grass here is what she's saying. Um, <laughs> uh, this is a fantastic record that is 
really minimal uh, as far as her instrumentation goes, but you can tell her pedal arrangements on her cello, like the choice of, of effects that she uses, uh, loops, distortion, delay, and otherwise for the cello just makes for some really unique moments. And I would love to hear y'all's thoughts on one of these tracks here. Uh, because to me, this is like pop goes straight into fucking rock star mode, even though it's just beautiful, uh, melancholic kind of ambient, uh, classical inspired uh songwriting uh so let me find the track here before i play it fully. no yes okay this is todo lo que quería saber uh which jonas translate todo lo que querías saber i don't have it in me right now <laughs> all of that all everything I've wanted to know. Yes, all that I've wanted to know. Thank you, Saber. I knew at the end that I've wanted, querías, wanted, past tense. God damn it. My horrible Spanish. Everything that I've wanted to know. Todo lo que querías saber. Here we go. Sin saber aterrizar 
gets me every fucking time. So fucking good. Mabe Frati from Ciudad de Mexico. Seriously went crazy. Yeah, no, you guys, y'all can check her out on YouTube. They're fact magazine, like live band performance of her. Really, really beautiful. This record, Pies Sobre la Tierra, uh, some of my favorite most emotionally evocative stuff i've heard in a while this was like my she's like my my covid discovery that i was like i need to consume all of your work right now like <laughs> was really became obsession like within the past like two years um what i again you know what we're hearing here and what i think is so great about this is that it's 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 really well produced it's a really full mix no not just not just hearing a live loop station. It doesn't sound like a live loop station sort of performance where it's it's just the pedals and the cello. You know, we really hear these different voices uh, as different tracks, as different recordings. And some of them are so nuanced. Like I hadn't even really picked up on that fuzz reverb bus that we were hearing on the, on the, there was that, fuzzy reverberated bus off on the sides that was so just hidden in the mix that it barely even had any tonality to it it was just this sort of timbre of the fuzz yeah and then hearing the reverse on that uh at the yeah there, there was something at the i mean there's synthesis in here too i'm not sure exactly what she's playing as far as the pads and the synthesizer goes but it really th that's more of the accompaniment that i'm hearing compared to the work that the, the cello and the sort of re recording process of that, of the cello itself goes. Um, Pete, you say those deep fits fill me with a warmth that will sustain me as I go, oh, as you go dig the car out of the snow. Yeah, I mean, it's such a minimal song and it was like, uh, at it the initial key of it at the beginning was there was a chord progression of uh, i think it was was it so hold on let me get the the, the initial uh that initial chord progression yeah so it's really in g minor the c to the c to major sixth back up to the root minor e, ma e minor but then we get to the hook where it just goes up a step from the c major to the d major which is the dominant seventh of this of the key we're in so it never resolves back to the e minor which i really love is that as far as like compositional arrangement goes, it's yeah, G minor. No, no, it's G major, E minor. Um, it's uh, but what I really love about it is it, from a compositional perspective is that we start really dark, almost fucking doom metal, like reminds me of Mismore, like the. You know that shit using that tritone in a minor scale at the at the at the uh major sixth below so fucking mm, so good in fact i know doom some doom metal songs that have used that on some fucking evocative dark minor intro shit uh really really beautiful stuff uh y'all should definitely be checking out mabe frate stuff uh shout outs to mabe needs to go to mexico city at some point i must i must i must any other anybody want to give one more track today in the chat in the chat anything else no vince you got another one all right vince go ahead where is it in the discord or here 
Come on now. Got to get the links ready to drop the moment's notice. <laughs> okay. Peter doesn't want to double dip. Vincent is shameless. Anybody else that hasn't submitted? How about anybody who hasn't submitted one? Uh, Calvin, Dean, Jonas, Charlie. Anybody got anything today they want to show? Any questions? Or even just a track that gets you stoked as fuck? Oh, yeah, you did, Jonas. I'm sorry. Jonas submitted the Japanese track. Calvin, Dean, Charlie, anybody? <laughs> All right. Uh, let's, let's not double dip today. Let's not double dip because I because I got have to rush out anyways within the next ten minutes. So it's all good. It's all good. Don't be you're not a glutton, Vince. I'm just fucking with you. Thanks to everybody chilling with me today. Uh well, Dean and Charlie, bring some links next time. You know. You know how it is. Yeah, you know I'm well known for my manners. <laughs> Fuck everybody. No, I love y'all. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Be safe. Stay warm if it's cold. Uh, hang out with your buddies. Enjoy Dia del Acción de Gracias, which is what we call Thanksgiving in Puerto Rico. It's better to call it that way. It sounds more intense. Love it. See y'all on Tuesday for Performance Workshop. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Lameem Young with me, Max Alper. You can sign up for the Patreon virtual classroom at lameemyoung.com, where we also are now offering monthly and weekly private lessons for those looking to get a more individualized pedagogical approach. Thanks again.